0: Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and to celebrate the end of 2022, today on the podcast, we are sharing the top 10 strategies as shared by our guests for building a valuable company and punching above your weight when negotiating the sale of your business. Now, there were so many amazing episodes and strategies from the past 50 episodes. So to help us choose which ones we should include on our list, we left it up to you. We chose the top 10 most popular podcast episodes from this past year and in no particular order compiled our favorite tactics from those episodes. Now, I categorized these clips into three buckets. The first five clips you're going to hear are about building the value of your company. The next four are about how to punch above your weight when negotiating the sale of your business. And the final tip I'm going to leave you with is about life after the sale and how to digest what you have achieved. Now, before we jump into today's special, just a quick reminder, if you're not subscribed, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. And lastly, in case you missed one of these episodes that you're hearing and want to go and check those out, I have added links to each one of the episodes shared in this podcast over in the show notes section, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Now, without further ado, here are our top 10 strategies from 2022. Enjoy. Now, the first of our five value building strategies comes from Harun Maktazarda, Who founded webs.com, which sold for 117 million back in 2011, and most recently founded Truebill, which was acquired in 2022 for 1.25 billion. Now, as you would have heard during his episode with John, he discussed the errors he made when assembling his leadership team for webs.com. And in this clip, he candidly shares these mistakes and provides valuable advice for finding the best hires for your company. I
1: think a lot of people listening to this are, are probably in the throes of building their C-level team out yeah. and would benefit from your experience. You mentioned you made a couple of mistakes. Yeah. What was the biggest mistake you made in building your executive team?
2: So, so one is hiring people where I didn't have a clear idea of what they were actually going to do. I actually think sometimes the best way to do it is like you set up a department, you set up something and you're like, now I need someone to run it. And like, you know, like it's at a good place and like, let me just drop someone in or you need a whole new department and, and like you, you, you need, you don't know how to set it up. And so you're just going to bring someone to build out a whole practice, but taking something that's already working and just trying to plug a senior person into it for the heck of it, even though it's already working well is like, is very difficult. Because the the people who are used to the way it was working and all of that, there can be tissue rejection, there can be all kinds of problems and fallout from doing that. And people feel like, so for example, in the product area, I was doing that. And, but then I was like, I need a product lead under me. But then everyone was like going around them and still coming to me. And if I disagreed with the person under me, it would be my decision anyway. So people were just like, I'll just come back to Harun. And so it's like, sort of, then that person's wondering what their real role is. Um, so, that's one. The other is just paying too much attention to the resume and like not enough attention to like, there's a lot of good resumes out there and it's really hard to tease out. You can see like, oh, that was a great company or that was a great product and this person worked on that product. But what you don't know is like, what did they actually do? Like, you know, if you think about like school and you think about group projects, it was like the one or two people that like really made that group project happen and then there's everybody else who kind of supported and contributed. And it's like, that's who you want to find is like, who's the person that you're like really wanted to be on your group project in school. That's the type of person you want to hire.
1: And if it's not on a resume,
2: yeah,
1: what do you look for in an interview or some other source to identify the person who's going to do the line, share the work in the
2: group project? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is like when you're interviewing them is the stuff they're saying like super resonating. Like you, you almost come away with a feeling for really great hires, like In the first conversation, you're just like, holy crap, I have to get this person. Like that's what it feels like. It's like, geez, I need to get that person. And it's like there's a chemistry between you. You guys like talking the same way. You have like some shared interests. And then the stuff they're saying is like there's things that are like either blowing your mind or getting you really excited. Right. And that's what it feels like. And what I ended up doing is I would have these conversations and I would be like, I guess they're good. um, So let's hire them. And it's like super risky when you're dealing with senior hires to do that. Like you've got to be like really, really like I ha- we have to have this person in our company. Yeah,
1: yeah. What I'm hearing you say is there's there's a there's a sort of level of of connection you get with someone where there is a deep shared uh, knowledge of something. Like if you're having a conversation with a casual sports fan, and you start talking about something peculiar like the Tour de France bike race. Yeah, they might be able to reference. Oh, you know and the, the Peloton, et cetera, but they won't necessarily be able to get into the details. If that guy was in sixth gear, on Alpe d'Huez, on third turn, right. and when you find someone like that and you start to connect in that level of detail, it's like instant, you know they've actually know what they're talking about.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know what they're talking about, exactly. Yeah. Am I putting
1: words in your mouth here, but no. as you talk about it,
2: I, I feel I that sense of... I think that's right, and often having them maybe present something or do some work, solve a challenge that you've been thinking about or something like, what would you do in this case? And if they come back with something that's like, oh, wow, that's actually better than what I would have done. Right? Like they've got to kind of be better than you in some way at your, at the job. Um, Otherwise it's going to be really hard because you're just going to be telling them to do things and you're just going to want to be like, forget it. I'll do it myself because I can do it better. Um, and so like, they've got to be better than you at it. Um, and they've got to be necessary. Like they can't just be superfluous or like, let's hope. It's also really good to just have, if someone tells you this person is awesome and there's someone you trust, that's super helpful, right? Like, they're just like, trust me, they're just awesome. You're not gonna go wrong with this person. And that's different than calling the two references that they might give you because those are always gonna be good. Um, But like, you need to do some back channel ideally to someone else that you know that worked with them. And, you know, look, think about all the people you've worked with in the past. Like, you know who's awesome and you know who's like, okay. Um, And like the people that are awesome, you'd be like, dude, if you can get that person, hire them yesterday. And that's like the type of language you want to hear. That's the signal um, that like, okay, this is like a really good person.
0: Now, up next, we're going to hear from Gavin Hammer, who as you remember, founded Sendable, which is a platform that allows companies to manage all of their social media accounts from one place. Now, after experiencing a period of stagnation, Gavin attended a conference in 2016, which changed the trajectory of his company. And in this clip, Gavin shares how embracing the identity of a scrappy startup and looking smaller actually allowed his company to flourish and grow bigger.
3: About three years of just no growth. And what I needed to do was figure out how I could make this company grow again. So what I, what I, went, what I did was I went to this, um, this conference in San Diego called Social Media Marketing World back in 2018, I think it was just to figure out like what are thought leaders saying about social media? Where are the opportunities? How can I get this business to grow again Um, instead of flatlining? And back then, everyone was talking about storytelling. Like you have to be a storyteller, you have to kind of talk about your brand. Um, Rather than selling it, you have to tell the stories behind the company. So I came back from that conference and I thought, okay, how can we reposition Sandable in a way that positions us as, as brand storytellers? leans into our truth, like figure out what makes us different from the likes of Hootsuite, Sprout Social, et cetera. And I went through this brand building exercise, kind of redesigning our brand strategy, looking at everything we could do differently to help us stand out. And uh, what I figured out was like, rather than um, pretending to be like everyone else, like having all this kind of um, putting money into ads, hiring salespeople, what if we could be more open about being smaller, being smaller, being bootstrapped, being focused on the customer, What if we made that a public message for our our users and our audience? Um, so I started like sharing behind the scenes stuff, like just sharing behind the scenes, like content about my struggles as a founder, about the company struggling, about how we kind of were like the small fish in this big sea of funded competitors and people started like loving the storytelling. They like, they started to lean into the story. Um, I did things like I had a podcast sharing the behind the scenes stuff. Um, suddenly these uh, customers were like telling their friends about Sendable and about the story and everything behind the scenes. And, you know, I realized that you know, companies like Hootsuite, they were kind of faceless brands, they had, you know, hundreds of employees, they couldn't put a, a face to the brand. So we, we took this approach of just kind of doing everything we could to show our faces. We even removed stock images on the on the blog and have photos of real employees. We did things like use video for support. So rather than having a support tickets over text. You could have a video asynchronous video conversation with a a person from our support team. So just showing our faces wherever we could. And then our brand just really took off. So from that, we had this amazing um, group of advocates of customers who were talking about Sendable, spreading the word, spreading the love, talking about our customer service, people behind the company, and our growth just took off from there. So just literally building that brand spending time on telling stories. Uh, so we went from that, that stagnated period of growth um, in 2016, 2018, to growing about, it's about 30% a year after that. So this, this is like a 10-year-old company growing at 30% a year again. Um, and we reached a point where we had seven figures in profits. You know, I can talk about EBITDA just now, but uh, now I think that 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 period of growth really helped to get us on the radar of of possible acquirers. So we had the likes of other tech companies reaching out to us, wanting to acquire us because our brand had become so big just from storytelling, really.
0: Now, for our third value building tip, we hear from David Darmanin, who was our most popular episode from 2022. Now, as you remember, David co-founded Hotjar, where he and his co-founders bootstrapped the company to $40 million in annual recurring revenue before selling it in 2021. Now, in this clip, David shares the critical distinction between building to sell versus planning to sell and how to utilize this strategy to increase your company's value.
4: A big part of this is the fact that, imagine, I am, so I am the frontman founder, right? Obviously, I have co-founders with me. I am the CEO. I am the board. I am the secretary, right? Like, I'm everything. And... Um, And this was the point where i started to realize actually this this is not a problem of a dividend this is actually a problem of governance of like this like we need to rethink this and slowly i started to think actually maybe i shouldn't be ceo and maybe i should be the like the board because i don't want investors it's not going to happen and because we started to see this clarity of let's keep this a private business for as long as we can a business that will last as long as possible then actually I should build a great leadership team. And I'm on the boards kind of um, driving more the vision and where we're going with the business. And I started this two, three-year project very slowly, very secretly of building that out.
1: Interesting. And I think that dovetails into a conversation we had before we hit record, which was this, this kind of distinction between built to sell versus... How did you put it? Uh, building so that you could sell. Explain to me your thinking between those and how those are different.
4: Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. So look, when, when I when I read the book, Build to Sell, and, and I loved it, it, it brought so much clarity around the way you think about the business as an entity, right? In terms of like, and, and like how you intertwine with that. So that was a big takeaway for me more than anything. And I think the ability to sell a business with you not kind of being an intrinsic part of it had more value to me than the sale itself i know it sounds crazy but it's because you're building the company in the right way but ultimately we also knew that we would that we wanted to build a company that was worth something it was the whole idea we mentioned earlier of you're not selling your time you're building equity right so if you can't sell something then <laughs> there is no equity isn't it's a concept of selling however the balance to that and i think it comes from my experience in being in businesses that were actively planned to be sold but ironically were not built to be sold so it's quite mm. interesting and I, when i read your book in looking back at my experiences i realized that so i wanted to do the opposite so i wanted to build a company that could be sold but not plan to sell it so what does that mean <laughs> so I, I think there's something dangerous in planning to sell in terms of kind of thinking, but oh, what would make this company more valuable and how could we, uh, how could we kind of increase the value and whatnot? And because I think it's dangerous because it takes you, it leads you down paths where you take dangerous decisions. So, in my opinion, you should run a business with a cause, right? More than anything. I think that's the most important thing. Why? Because business is not monopoly, it's not a finite game. Right? There's no end to it. So if you're planning to sell, then you're making it into a finite game. So I think it's more important to make it into an infinite game and have this cause like, so you're thinking about running this forever, and what, so what's gonna keep us going forever? So you can't sit down and planning selling the business because then you already failed, in my opinion. But you need to build it in a way that it can be sold because if you are building something valuable, and you miss that part, then you're missing one of the most important things in building equity. So that's my logic around it.
0: Now, in our next episode highlight, we feature Ramon Segal, who started remarketing. Now, as you would have heard during his interview, he was frustrated with the progress of his business and decided to do a complete analysis of his company. His foundings led him to make one bold decision that 20X'd his revenue which she shares with you in this next clip.
5: We help launch a TV channel. We worked for bars, for restaurants, like you name it, we did it. But we did this, we kind of had this kind of core specialism. And in about 2015, 16, we were going through a patch where I was just, um, honestly, I was just like, I was kind of, what are we doing? You know, what's the point in all this? And we were winning clients as, as quick as we were losing them. And I did an analysis of the business and where we looked at, uh, Kind of high maintenance, low maintenance clients versus profit, low profit and high profit, this matrix. And, and I know we'll come on to talk about the book, but it's, it's one of the first chapters in the book. Um, and what that, when I did that was a realization that actually all the clients we loved working with that were loyal, that paid well, were predominantly all B2B and actually all in the, in this pharmaceutical supply chain. So I kind of at the time made what felt like, a very courageous decision to just effectively refocus the entire business on this sector. Um, And at the time that was less than half of our business. So it just, but it felt right. And the sector was growing, it was global. And that really excited the team and I at the time, John, like we, it was just cool traveling all over the world. It part of a marketing, you know, it's, you know, at a time where Instagram and Facebook and all these types of platforms were getting bigger and bigger, you know, our team would be like, hey, we're in Copenhagen today. Hey, we're in New York today. And it, it generated interest from an employment perspective as well. Um, and then once, once we made that decision, the traction from that point, it, it just supercharged our growth. And, you know, becoming a specialist really was one of the initial pivot points that I think just supercharged where we went as a business
1: but it's easier said than done a lot of people you know know they should probably specialize but in particular in environments like we find ourselves in today where the economy might be getting a little shaky they take the position to look I mean I, I I don't you know beggars can't be choosers I can't be selective here I need the cash um, you know I'm gonna take Take what I can, and and maybe I'll I'll kind of have my cake and eat it too, and and I'll I'll say I have a specialty, but but in the back door I'll kind of take whatever comers. You avoided that temptation. It sounded like after this 2015 sort of moment. Yeah. What's what was your secret to staying disciplined? It's a
5: great question, and. Bear in mind, before we did it, I had six, seven years of not staying disciplined,
1: so I knew,
5: <laughs> I knew what the other side of the coin looked like. Um, which sounds
1: to me, Ramon, like it was clients leaving as fast as you could win them. So, sort not super satisfied clients. What, what were are the other downsides of not being specialised?
5: I think the one thing that I I struggle is that you almost felt like you were having to re you had to learn a new industry every day, and I and I mm. found that very. to an extent, it's quite exciting, but you have to be a specialist on this sector and then this sector and this sector. And what we found and the reason we stayed disciplined is when we said no to things, it allowed us to focus the attention on the stuff we wanted to say yes to. So as a consequence of that, John, our conversion rate went up because we were able to focus time, energy and resources on the right kind of opportunities. The other thing I would say is it brought great clarity to the business. So, you know, which events are you going to? What media are you consuming? You know, all, how do, you know, how do we talk about ourselves on our website? What do we do from a marketing perspective? Who do we hire? It became less general and much more narrow, which in a sense is restrictive. And that's the challenge with it. It's kind of like it narrows everything, but it, within that, then it also creates opportunity and you get creative within those, those boundaries. And certainly that, that's what worked for us. And, it wasn't without challenge by any stretch of the imagination, but at the same time, you know, it it no doubt helped us just become, you know, you know, Seth Godin uses the phrase, you know, become meaningfully specific. That's exactly what we did. So to our to to our potential clients, they would find us online and be like, "Oh my god, I cannot believe an agency like you exists." This-
0: and lastly, for our final value building tip, we hear from Mike Winnett, who started UK based Learning Heroes. Now, in the first year of business, Winnett was approached by Google with a lucrative offer to create some bespoke content for them. And during this clip, Mike shares why he turned down the short term project from Google in favor of building the long term value of his company, resulting in the sale of his £2 million business for an impressive £8 million.
6: Yeah, yeah. So the maddest thing about all that stuff is I wrote down exactly the number of sales that I needed to get for each year, year one, year two, year three. Uh, Year one was 80. And I finished the year exactly on 80 sales. Year two was 200. And I ended the year exactly on 200 sales. Uh, And the year three was 400. And we were on 340 at this point. But it kind of blows my mind that I don't believe in the law of attraction and manifestation or any of these things. I think the law of action, actually having a clear plan and sticking to it, um, and then not being distracted by, you know, shiny object syndrome that a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs have sticking to the plan was key to us, uh, hitting those numbers. Um, but when we were saying the first year, we weren't paying ourselves about nine months in, I think we might be paying ourselves $500 a month, um, which was less than what my expenses were at the time. And Google came along cause they'd seen some of our content and they wanted us to create them some bespoke content and offered us $90,000 to do it. And it was a three month project. And we said no. We said no to Google at $90,000, even though we weren't paying ourselves properly because it didn't fit the plan and it would have derailed us and put us back three months. So we made those types of decisions knowing full well that in three years time, we would get 10 million for the business. That was, we were that sure of the plan and we were that confident that we stuck to the plan even when money would probably distract a lot of other people in business. I know loads of people would have took that 90 grand contract. Whereas we didn't, because it didn't fit, didn't fit the model. And we used to have a sign on the wall that said, does it make the boat go faster? And if the decision didn't make the boat go faster, we didn't do it. And it was that simple.
0: It's an amazing story. Okay, so now we are diving into tips to help you punch above your weight in the negotiation to sell your company. And first, we hear from James Ashford, who had a two part episode sharing the acquisition story of his company Go Proposal. And during this clip, James shares four strategies he implemented to sell his 12 person company for eight figures. So, the accounting industry, somebody
7: rang me, a, a prominent person rang me and said, What the hell are you doing? Like, you've made a real mistake here, James. Like, you've picked the worst industry. They don't like anyone from outside of their industry. They will question everything you do, they will challenge you. And um, you're trying to sell them a sales product. Like, that's not anything that they warm to. They, they don't want to sell. Um, I think you've made a real mistake. And I said, Look, they're, they're humans with hopes and dreams and fears. And I'm just going to tap into that. And I'm just going to talk to that. And so everything I've learned up until that point, and this is where everything started to come together. Um, so I used to be a magician, right? That's where I learned how to sell. Walking up to a group of drunk people at a wedding who hate magicians, don't believe in magic, don't want you there. And I had to convince them that magic was real. Like, So I knew how to sell. I'd learned about how to systemize to, with, um, I, again, I went over to the States and worked with a company called Six Division. And, and understood systemization, so you seal all the cracks so that you can allow your... T- and people think that, that if you have really rigid, robust systemization with checklists and automation, etc., that you turn your staff into robots. just the opposite of that. It makes your staff these creative, wonderful people that now don't have all that crap to think about. And they can now operate at their best creative selves, run experiments. Drive the business forward, be entrepreneurs. And, and that was what we, we, we created. Um, but the the way I chose to scale in the business was with all the marketing that I'd learned was give everything away, share everything. So this original accountancy firm that I was worked, that I'd built the sales system in, I became a 10% shareholder of that business. And in return, I gave him 10% of Go Proposal. Right. Now, what that beautifully did was it gave me an accountant on the inside of my business to give me the advice I needed. But it meant that when I gave talks and things, I could say, Yeah, so I'm the director of an accounting business and this is what we do in our firm. And and so I got some credibility. I wrote a book called Selling to Serve. Now, this isn't, this is the updated version they updated last year. You can see the thickness of this, John. This is the original version. That you can see the difference in fact there was a version prior to this that it was so thin amazon wouldn't allow me to have any text on the spine right i gave gave myself a week to write it to write the book but i I didn't care whether it was good or not i just wanted something in the space it happened to be okay Um, so the
1: book was intentional for you to get in front of accounting firms and accountancy firms that would enable you to sell the software
7: correct so i thought the only thing I can share is what I know, which is, you know, the, the sales process that we've implemented into this firm, how you should sell,
0: you know, everything that we've done, I just gave it all away. Jody Cook's first episode on Built to Sell Radio has been the second most downloaded episode of all time. Her episode was so popular, partly in due to her ability to sell her service business without an earnout, which is unfathomable for many service businesses out there. So we decided to bring her back on the podcast to learn exactly how she did it. And in this clip, she shares how she replaced herself as the rainmaker of her company.
1: I'm glad you raised this issue of handing off clients because I think for a lot of service businesses in particular, this is the hardest bit. People can get their head around, oh, I got to create a standard operating procedures to send invoices or you know how to open the shop in the morning, like all that. So like, they kind of get that. Where they get tripped up is how do I get a a loyal client for whom they view me as their primary point of contact and transfer them over to an account manager? How did you do that?
8: We had a lot of discussions about it. So we would think about our clients in terms of the different client personalities, I guess, and we would talk a lot about what they really wanted. And because it was quite simple, Our clients were mainly marketing managers or they were entrepreneurs. And those two separate types of people want kind of different stuff and they're different. They want talking to in a different way and they're looking for different things. So we talked quite a lot about client archetypes and how to speak to each one. We had things like... um, We had things like... If a client came in for a meeting, the first five minutes of how you frame that meeting are really important. So it was like, don't talk to them about traffic. Don't talk to them about an injury that they've got. Talk to them about something that they like talking about and make small talk about positive things. So little stuff like that, we tried to, I tried to kind of take all the tacit knowledge that I had in my head of how to make a client feel comfortable and how to just get on with people and talk to my team about it as well. And then they came up with their own ideas. And then we put lists together of Conversation starters, or how to get a meeting after a great start. I think there was actually an SAP document that was actually just called "How to Open a Meeting with a Client." So it really was nuanced. We went into a lot of detail. I think um, a messy time that I remember is between me handing over client communication to account managers, but me, but when I was still doing the sales. Because it meant that I was speaking to clients to sign them up, to get them on board and then handing them over. And that's when they'd be like, hang on, why aren't you in this meeting? You signed us up. And that was tough. That was was really tough. But then when I started delegating the sales, that was so much easier. And I became just a behind the scenes person rather than someone who was there and then wasn't there.
0: The third negotiation tactic we're going to hear is from Eddie Whittingham. Who, as you might remember, was the former police officer and lawyer who bootstrapped a cybersecurity SaaS business, the Defense Works, in less than four years for a multi million dollar exit to a NASDAQ listed company. Now, during the negotiations for his company, he was offered seven times revenue for his business. He said no, absolutely wild. And in this clip, he shares how he did so respectfully, ultimately negotiating his way to over 10 times revenue. For his company, the defense works.
1: Eddie, you know we, we we haven't known each other long, but you seem like a really affable, chill guy who I would love to have a beer with. And I, I'd imagine that for the acquirer, you describe them. You were anticipating this sort of very intense yeah. negotiation, and, and in your own admission, it was like, yeah, hey, it was pretty good. Like they were they were good people, and they they made it easy and comfortable. Whatever. I guess the where I'm going with this question is how do you say no how did you say no that's not enough
9: without coming off like a prick yeah really good question I, do you know what i think just being honest because i think what i what i'd said from day one was like if you ask me a question i'll give you an honest answer um and so then when they when they said like is this in the is this in the ballpark sorry no it's not um, it was you know like Those negotiations are going to be tough. Doesn't matter what level, whether you're negotiating a thousand pounds or five hundred million pounds, it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, you've still got to be direct about it. And if they're not going to meet that valuation you've got in your mind, you're going to have to walk away. Now, don't get me wrong. Me and my wife had some pretty scary conversations of like, yeah, if you say no to that, (laughs) and then they walk away, you're, you're you're effectively gambling a figure there that you might never get offered again. But, but then if that figure is low enough that you think, well, it doesn't matter because I'm pretty confident, give me a year, I'm going to be turning over X, Y, and Z and working towards this goal, then, then I think that, that was, I was in quite a lucky position. I, I think I was relatively empowered by the fact I hadn't gone looking for the sale.
0: Now, the last strategy we're going to share for helping you punch above your weight in negotiating the sale of your company comes from Taraj Parang. Now, this year, we began the Acquire series, which focused on understanding what buyers look for when acquiring a company. Now, Taraj Parang, who previously led acquisitions for GoDaddy, emphasized the importance of cultivating a relationship with a potential strategic acquirer long before considering selling your business. And in this clip, he provides insight on how to establish a connection and get your foot in the door with a strategic acquirer.
1: You know, on this show and a lot of the guests, one of the kind of core tenets of punching above your weight as a seller is to get multiple offers, right? So in your case at at webs.com, you had Vistaprint, you had a a whole group of of companies that you were talking to. And that of course hardens the deal terms, gets a better price, and, and that's great. When you are wearing your GoDaddy hats, What was your reaction to learn that a company was being shopped to your competitors?
10: Right. Yes. So... And this, this also hinges on the level of relationship you have with those entrepreneurs. And, and this is what I emphasize also in my book is that this human dimension, the relationship dimension is so critical in M and A. And that's something I didn't realize until I was more on the acquirer side. This is one of the biggest lessons learned for me was. How important it is to build those relationships early. Now, if if my first interaction with an entrepreneur or our our company's leadership's interaction with an entrepreneur, the first one is, hey, we are in an auction process. Do you guys want to participate? It just kind of leaves a bad taste. Uh, It's, um, you know, acquirers have feelings too. (laughs) Why didn't we know about you guys beforehand, right? Uh, Are we, are we just here to prop up your valuation with others? Because obviously, if we were important enough to you as a strategic acquirer, you would have built that relationship with us. So that this is kind of the mindset of an acquirer. Now, if an asset is highly strategic, highly critical, existential, from a competitive perspective, various reasons, right? We we could still throw our hat in. We wouldn't be um, so emotionally hurt that we would just say, forget it, uh, we would still have a business logic and look at it. But the bar would be very high. Uh, you know, It would have to be really something quite uh, important to us to, to engage. Now, the bar would be lower if we had already had a relationship with that company or entrepreneur. Maybe we had connective tissues with them. Maybe they are already integrated into our product suites. Maybe we are doing co-marketing with them. It could be different, different ways that we have known them over the years. And then they enter into a competitive a lot of times they get an inbound interest. Um, then we would be much more eager to engage. Uh, again, the the business logic has to be there. Um but, um, the bar, I would say is lower because we, we have confidence. We know these, uh, the, our counterparts, um, what I observed in doing those, uh, many acquisitions at GoDaddy and our team did over 20, uh, actually over 30 probably, um, uh, in my tenure, seven year tenure there, um, is that on average we had known the target for over a year. So. Um, and the deal itself takes you know, at least four to six months, as you know, from the term sheet negotiations to closing. Um, so um, uh, it, it's a, it's a long term kind of relationship building exercise that entrepreneurs need to engage in um, before they bring up the subject of a competitive uh, dynamic in, a, in an acquisition.
0: Now for our final strategy and our top 10 most popular strategies of 2022, we're going to hear from Timo Armu. Now, Timo started the influencer marketing agency Fanbytes. And if you remember, he reached 65 employees and hit revenues of eight figures when he decided to sell the company to Brain Labs for around three times revenue. Now, one of John's favorite questions to ask entrepreneurs on the show is, what was the highest point emotionally you reached in selling your company?" Timo's answer to this question was particularly memorable and captured the essence of why this show exists.
11: So my dad passed away when I was 21. And a few days after we signed a deal, I went to the cemetery and I was just like shouting and I was crying. I was just like, man, like, I was like, we fucking did it. I was like, did it, da, da, da. Uh, Because he was actually alive just at when I was like starting Fan bites, um, And he kept saying, no, I'm so proud of you. I don't understand what the heck you're doing, but I'm so proud of you. And that was the highest point where I went there and I was just like shouting like literally just like, like
8: we did it.
11: We did it. Um, that was a place where I just felt like, you know, coming back from Ghana. So I was born in London, but I went to live in Ghana for 10 years. And so I came Yeah, So I came here and I've lived here for 17 years. Like that shouting and screaming felt like 17 years of just like, like succeeding and failing and figuring things out and all that stuff. And like, that was a really high point personally for me.
0: There you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode and for being a loyal built to sell radio listener. We truly appreciate your support and engagement and we hope that our episodes have brought you value to your life and your business. Now, as the holiday season approaches, we want to take a moment to wish you and your loved ones a happy and safe holiday. We hope that you'll get to spend some quality time with family and friends and that you have a chance to relax and recharge. We'll be back in the new year with some more exciting episodes. But until then, we want to thank you once again for your support and for being a part of this amazing community. Again, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, hit that subscribe button. If you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you have a chance to nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the podcast with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Happy holidays. Talk to you again next week.